0: Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Kana albinas Makalua.
1: The Me and Team.
0: Mega Bears fan.
2: <laughs> Welcome to Polycast episode 355. This is Mega Bears Fan, along with your regular co-hosts Makalua.
0: Still not caffeinated enough, even though it's after a
3: The Me and Team. Nothing good possible. And our super special guest host, Dan Q. Now working towards having the second most frequent guest co-host appearances on this show. Awesome. But does it
0: still count if you're a previous co-host? I mean, can you move categories like that? I don't know.
3: Oh well I'm not moving categories, I'm adding a new category. See, I'm the second I have the second most appearances as a regular co-host, thanks Maggie. And now I'm moving to become the second most frequent guest, so that way they're nicely aligned. Also, this is episode three hundred and fifty-three. Uh, Jason has dreamed up a couple of episodes in his mind. I won't ask about what's th- what's involved with them. It could scare <laughs> us all away. Oh, uh, What did I say? You said three fifty-five. <laughs> oh dang it! And I, just before we started,
2: I double-checked that I had the right number, <laughs> and then awesome. in the like in the minute in between,
1: oops. No. All right. To the goldfish. It's
2: oh, nerves
0: and seriously. jitters.
1: I- Man,
2: and to oh, man. Sorry,
0: we're going to be a little chaotic for a couple of episodes because we don't have Canis around to keep this in line.
2: Yeah, so if, if you listened to the previous episode, uh, we announced that uh, Canis will be on an indefinite hiatus. And uh, the rest of us, w- we weren't sure at the time whether or not we'd even be able to do any further episodes, but we've decided that we're going to try to muddle through as best we can. So these next few weeks, maybe months, uh, are going to be pretty chaotic as we try to, you know, take care of uh, all the things that Canis was always so gracious to take care uh, for us. So this week we're not live streaming because none of us could figure out how to actually get that started. We're just recording and hopefully for uh, the next episode or the episode after that, we will all be ready for live streaming again. We'll see.
3: Hey, uh, Jason. What's what's the uh, what's the episode number of the next episode? Huh?
2: Huh? Seven hundred twelve. I don't. Woo. <laughs> 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 uh, I think I have it's amazing. To amusing.
3: go back to and learn to count in math again. That's okay. I... I learned
1: to count in math.
3: I mean, it's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting, <laughs> right? I mean, I I was the lead co-host and owned the show till the end of 2018, and then Candice took my place, and now I'm temporarily taking Candice's place again. It's really quite symbiotic when you think about it. Yep. I'm not
0: going to think about it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> some jokes came to mind, but for in a rare bout of showing some semblance of decent pace, pace, I didn't say it.
2: Yeah, I just have to say, I've never actually
1: seen Panis again at the same place at the same time. <laughs> oh, not their
3: hour, guy? I guess that's all right. Yeah, that's true. I also haven't seen that. Therefore. You know what else you don't see until you start the game? Districts. That's what you don't see. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I'm trying to find the next clip, and you guys are talking over the last one thing. (laughs) Uh, I guess this counts as this. Well, this is like listening to the radio, right? You know how the
3: DJs talk over the start and the end of songs.
0: Now that Dan has been quiet, it's like glaring at him for the internet. (laughs) Uh, We're going back to what we were doing a couple of episodes back with our guide for newer players. Now we're in stuff about the more of the mid game after you've gotten a few cities out or got your first couple of cities and you're thinking, well, now, what do I want to do with like, oh, I don't know, placing districts? Because I think we talked a little bit, the tiniest bit about that, but we didn't want to be overwhelmingly confusing. So there's that, and where you should put them, and what you should put them next to, which it I think we, yeah, very I think important
2: part of Civ six,
0: very important. And, I mean, uh, you can just place them on any open terrain, but then you miss out on bonuses, and you at least want a plus one or something because every little bit helps. I think we kind of touched on the fact you want to want to. Well, we mentioned mountains specifically for, uh,
2: campuses yeah, and holy sites. Yes,
0: <laughs> brain <coughs> brain freeze
1: also like one a... of those mechanics that make uh, Civ Six special uh, compared to its previous iteration and has a lot of depth to it. Uh, so like, it, when you're placing for adjacency, you have to consider what kind of adjacency bonuses you're going to get now versus what kind of adjacency bonuses you'll get later. Uh, sometimes you want to hold off for a much better spot, but sometimes the payoff of that's going to be bad because you're going to have to wait so long until you can actually get that truly optimal adjacency that you might as well just placed it somewhere where you get some benefit earlier um, and that can inform your strategy quite a bit, like if you're going for a rush or something, where you might place districts.
2: And a big part of that weighting often comes from the fact that the number of districts that you can construct in any given city is limited by its population. So when you first found your city and it has one population, you can build one district And then after that, you have to wait for every third population point before you can build another district. So at population four, you can build a second district. At population seven, you can build a third district, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Unless, of course, you're playing a civilization like Germany that has a special power that, uh, you know, changes that. So one of the things about this game is all rules are subject to being changed by uh, civilization's unique abilities or some other effect.
3: So that's another consideration in placing a district as well is being able to grow your city so that if you're thinking, oh, this is going to be a nice spot for a holy site, and I'm going to have a campus, and I'm going to be a commercial hub, you want to ensure that you have a sufficient amount of terrain that's going to be able to get you that food growth within a reasonable period of time so you can construct those districts because, as was alluded to in episode 351, and you actually mentioned it right at the end of the episode, Jason, that as time goes on, it costs more to construct a district the district cost goes up as you continue to progress the technology in the civic tree. So in addition to that, you want to ensure that your, <laughs> that your city also has sufficient production in order to be able to construct that. So back to Phil's original point, which is you need to be thinking about what districts you want in the immediate term and also in the longer term so that ideally the the city is going to be good for you in the short term and then it's going to grow so it can still be a viable part of your empire in the mid to late game or at least help carry you until you have another city that can kind of take over for that.
2: And there is a little trick to mitigate the cost scaling of the districts, uh, which is that, and I don't think they've patched this out yet, so I'm pretty sure it's still in the game, Uh, if you place the district on the map, it locks, it locks in the cost at whatever it was at the point where you placed it. So, so if you like, as soon as you get up to you know population seven or whatever, and you know what district you want to build next in that city, even if you have some other things that you need to build first in the meantime, say you're you're mobilizing for a war, so you need to build some units or or you need to build walls or something like that, uh, you can just, just go into the build queue plop down that next district in the location you want it to be, and then switch to something else. And that will lock in the cost of that district so that even if you do advance through technologies and the cost of districts would go up, that district will not cost any more than it did when you first uh, placed it on the map. So that's a, a handy little trick for you know intermediate to advanced players to take advantage of, which will really help speed up the development of your cities.
1: And again, part and, of the reason it's intermediate is that... You are delaying the benefit of completing a district earlier by just sitting on it. So you have to be careful. Like You don't want to always just lock in a district and leave it there until you're ready to build it. Uh, sometimes you, you want to build something else right away. But yeah, that's a always a useful thing to keep in mind. District cost scaling can be quite painful. Yeah, and you, you
2: want to be careful that you're not doing something like placing down a theater square and then not finishing it, and then in the meantime, someone declares war on you, and it's like, oh crap, I really need an encampment there, but you can't build it, because you got to wait until you get to that next population threshold, because you also cannot delete districts. The only way to remove districts from the game is for a city to be captured and raised by another player. One
0: of the little (laughs) quality of life things that we would all love to have is the ability to remove the district later on, because sometimes it's in the way, and at least we still get the resources. We accidentally plop it on something like you've plopped it on your one source of oil that you didn't know about. Hey, at least you still get the oil, but.
3: Yeah. And it's one of those things where if the district is already placed there and there is a strategic resource that you reveal afterwards by progressing through the technology tree, you are going to get that resource instantly. You're not going to have to improve it. The district is that improvement, but once it is revealed, you're not going to be able to place a district there and district tiles, of course, cannot be worked for their terrain yield. So when you pay attention to all of those adjacency bonuses, it's one of those things where as a tip for that, you may be looking in the city and it's like, you know what? I want to be able to construct my campus or commercial hub, but it's telling me I can't I can't build anything. I can't build this district here. What are you talking about? I haven't placed a district yet. I have a size one, two, three city. What's going on? This is when you need to look at what hexes are currently owned buy that particular city, and you may need to buy a hex, even if it's just to figure out, okay, what is the adjacency bonus going to be a couple of hexes out? I mean, shoot, I've been playing this game since it was before released. Uh, as part of the testing group, and even now, I don't sit and I think okay, that's going to give me plus one and plus two. I want the game to tell me, and the game telling you what the adjacency bonus is is fantastic, but you're going to have to purchase a hex in order to be able to see what that's going to be a couple of hexes out, but it's definitely worth the while to take a few moments. It's a turn-based strategy game, after all, so that you get the proper hex, because unless you're going to go to an autosave and, yeah, good luck doing that in a multiplayer game, of course, then you're going to have to be stuck with that placement. And yes, yes, you will curse where the artificial intelligence decides to place its districts when you start taking their cities and you can't do anything about it. But know that one of the reasons you were able to take one of their cities is because they didn't place it properly. And now you can make fun of them even more.
2: I do want to say that uh, I think there is a bug in the game still where campuses always show plus two, like no matter where you put them, uh, They, in fact, uh, generate, I think it's one per adjacent river tile, so if you're putting them along like a snaky river, it's probably going to be at least a plus three or a plus four, but the UI will still show plus two, and I don't know why that hasn't been fixed yet.
3: I know in episode 351, I believe it was you, Phil, who mentioned that, unfortunately, the Civilopedia is not going to tell you anything and everything that you want to know about what's going on in the game. And even in some cases, it may tell you what you want, but it may not be super convenient because, okay, this is an overlay on top of what I'm trying to do. So having a web browser open, uh, whether it's on your computer or on your phone, what have you, and you've got a Wikipedia called up, if you've got some other resource like the Well of Souls called up, And it will give you a nice reference in terms of this is what the adjacency bonus is. This is how much it's going to cost. This is when this district becomes unlocked. Because that's the other thing as well. In order to be able to construct these districts, like if you want to construct your campus, hey, I can't construct a campus. What are you talking about? I got a size three city. Have you researched writing yet? When, of course, we'll get into the technologies and civics in this episode as well. But my gosh, the district adjacency, and as talked about, in episode 351, and I know we've always talked about this on the show as well, that the snowball effect cannot be understated. That plus two, that plus three, maybe that's kind of, that's okay in the mid game, and I know we're focusing a bit on the mid game here, but in order to get to that point, my gosh, that plus two, plus three, plus four, that could be half double your science output for a very considerable portion of the game. And you want to be able to put yourself in a best position to not just survive in the game, but to also thrive as it goes along. Because you're probably going to have more fun that way. Yeah, if you're in a position where you can place down like a plus
2: four campus with like your first city or two, you are going to be in a
3: very good spot technologically for the entire game. And for that, it is definitely handy to have some gold in your treasury so you can go ahead and purchase maybe a hex or two that you want. You don't have to wait for your culture to expand naturally in order to get that. I know that's going to be an excellent adjacency for my holy site, my campus, my commercial hub, whatever. Go ahead and buy that now and so that you can lock in that district costs in relation to that era and where else you are in the technology and the civics tree because it'll be done that much more quickly and you'll be able to start using it that much more quickly as well. Because, again, as I said, if you realize afterwards, oh crap, I didn't intend to do that, then you're going to either have to go pack in your save or you're just going to have to deal with it. And we definitely do not recommend, hey, I, I placed my campus poorly. Hey, other Civ, can you raise my city so I can reconstruct the city and place it properly? <laughs> this is not a thing we call, oh, it's a strategy, it's a really bad strategy. Don't do that. But definitely yes. use <laughs> in the single player, Obviously, use the so. autosave if you have to. Honestly, if you have to, and if you're not believing us in the power of the adjacency bonus, then start using the autosaves and start placing them in different locations and just see what it is that we are talking about. Because in some cases, that campus in that one city place beautifully can have greater scientific output than two or even three cities for a period of time. And that's before you even start putting any buildings in the districts, which I'm certain we're going to get to very shortly now.
1: Or if this all sounds complicated for you, get down an early encampment, get an early great general, and take a bunch of city. That's right, especially as you
2: go up in uh, difficulty settings uh, to the point where the AI is starting with like free settlers and stuff like that. Uh, oftentimes it's better to just build units and capture the other civ cities that already have districts built rather than settling your own
3: cities and spending time in production building your own districts. Gosh, I thought Phil was going to troll and say, if this all sounds too complicated for you, you may want checkers. And I was going to be like, Phil. <laughs> no, that's one of yours, Dan. Oh, it's okay. I troll differently. <laughs> we each
1: have our like signature technique.
3: <laughs> and of course, was also alluded to, there are certain civilizations in the game that have unique districts either unique districts to construct or they have a discount to constructing districts or they're going to get more adjacency bonuses related to a particular district. This is where understanding the civilization that you are playing and the leader traits and the civilization traits will come in handy. I don't think we're going to talk about those specifically here, what those are, but you can find those out as well, which will also, or at least should have an impact in terms of what districts you're constructing when. And of course, the big thing, in addition to when, is where. Oh, and also your districts, um, they, they can be repaired. It is possible for a district to be pillaged. It is possible for you to pillage a district as well. Uh, districts are also adding to the combat strength of the city center and pillaging districts are going to reduce that strength. The repair time for a district can be extensive, so you do want to protect them. So if it's looking like that you are about to be invaded or you know you're going to be invaded, you don't necessarily have to have a unit on the hex of the district, but have something around to try to minimize it being pillaged because you may not have the time within that city to repair that district while you're trying to do something else. So protect it as an investment because... Each one of these districts allows the placement of up to three buildings, and it is possible for the district to be pillaged and the buildings within the districts to be pillaged. And that is... You, you it is feel a long that. repair time. It is a, a definitely a very, very long repair time. You <laughs> fix it, though. Because the repair time used to scale like the district costs,
1: and that was awful.
3: Oh, yes. It is better than it was. You, you'll still feel it. It's not like it was in vanilla. That's true, thankfully.
2: So I don't think we want to go through, like, every single district and and what they get adjacency bonuses uh, for. That's probably going to take too long, and uh, you're probably better served going to, like, the wiki and uh, reading up about that. But does anyone have any specific Specific tips tips, or advice advice. or maybe even for where they build districts, when they build districts, like how they like to maybe combine districts together together for various effects?
1: Um, only somewhat related, but do not knock slash underestimate building for like great generals or building for other stuff if the great person in question is useful to you. Uh, that is often worth investing. It depends what you're getting, but always keep that in the back of your mind. Once you have a district, you might want that great.
2: That's true, and if you have the district, you can also do the city project to speed up the generation of great person points. If you really need to rush towards uh, that great person, that's what I'm talking about. And then about, maybe finish it off, it off with either I. gold or
3: gold or faith. Yeah, I mean the district itself. Like if you construct a campus, that's going to give you in and of itself plus one great scientist point per turn.
0: But and... if you're trying to do a culture victory, you want that theater district so you can start earning writers and artists and everybody else. Oh,
1: do we talk about district diversity and the cost of
0: districts that way? Oh, that's, yeah, it's a, it's a subtle thing, but it'll get to you at some point. Well, okay, so, like, you get districts cost more
1: as you have more, or rather, is it that way or is it a discount? I forget exactly how it works.
2: I think it goes both ways. I think it, it scales up if there's too few of them, and I think the cost scales down if you there's, uh, or the other way around, it scales down if
3: there's too few of them and scales up if there's a lot. It's, yeah, it's in relation to the type of district compared to the other players. So if you have fewer of a dist- given district type than the average among all the players, then the cost is going to be reduced to you. And vice versa, if you have more of that particular district compared yeah. to the average of the other
2: players, then the cost of your districts will go up even further. And that's on top of the cost that's added for just advancing through the tech and civic trees.
1: Yeah. So, like, if you're really focusing on a particular victory condition, you might still want to get the more expensive districts, right? But on the other hand, other districts are valuable. Like, even if you're pushing hard for science, the civic unlocks are still pretty good. And so is having a military, for example. So you might want other districts, especially as the cost, uh, opportunity cost increases.
2: Right. Like, for example, even if you're playing as, like, a very passive, peaceful Uh, turtle strategy you might still want an encampment on a border city next to a potentially belligerent foe just as a deterrent to them trying to invade you because once you have an encampment and you have walls around your city the encampment also gets walls and has a bombardment so if they do suddenly attack you you're getting two bombardments from that one
3: city which can be invaluable in defense because yeah, only the encampment and the city center have any inherent combat strength. So this is that return on investment for the border cities, as Jason identified there, with encampments. Also towards the great people, like great general uh, generation, especially earlier on in the game, is. Phil was mentioning. And also wherever the city is placed, you're, you're the build order. I know we talked about this before. Your build order for your districts in part is going to depend on your terrain as well as what it is that you are trying to do. If you're always, oh, I always build the campus first. Well, at a certain point it might be, yeah, but there aren't any great adjacencies for a campus here based on the terrain, but there is a really good adjacency for the commercial hub, so why don't you go ahead and construct that, and then that place can have a commercial hub while your other cities, say your capital, is the one that has the science. It's like combined arms with warfare, that whatever particular thing that you are pushing and you want to be the leader in that particular yield... If you do that at the expense of the other yields in the game, that is going to catch up to you. And by the time that catches up to you, you may have a very difficult time trying to course correct. Like I said, if right. you've got a lot of science infrastructure, you need to be able to protect that. So you need to be able to have units. So your units, are you going to construct them? Are you going to buy them a combination of the two? So you know, mines, so paying attention to where you're settling the city, some industrial zones, commercial hubs, buildings within that, so you can protect that infrastructure and also your spaceport, which is uh, another, if you're going, say, for a science victory, then you've got to be able to do that. Otherwise, all you're doing is another civ going, hmm, man, I don't have a lot of commercial hubs, but hey, that player next to me, you know what? They have a lot of commercial hubs and they are weak. You know what? I think I'll just take over their economic infrastructure to go with my science one and my military powerhouse and then you're squished. Yeah, and there's there's no real right answer as to like what
2: districts you should build in what order. You know, you it's going to depend greatly on uh, on the circumstances of the map. It's going to depend on how the game is, is uh, unfolding and it's going to depend a lot on personal preference. I mean, personally, I usually like to build as one of my first districts the commercial hubs because I like to get the trade routes and the commercial hubs and markets unlock trade routes and sending those between your cities is very powerful. And I usually put lower priority on theater square districts because those get their best adjacencies from other districts and so they don't really give you – the best yield unless you have other districts surrounding them so what i usually try to do is i place my other districts first and then i plop down my theater square in between those districts a little bit later in the game but like i said that's not you know necessarily optimal play it's where, when you put certain districts down and in what order you put them and where you put them is going to depend on the circumstances of the game and your personal play style
3: And if you have the capacity to build, say, both a campus and a commercial hub in that moment, and it's like, well, I could go with one or the other, there's absolutely nothing wrong with saying, selecting the campus, show me all the adjacency bonuses. Okay, that hex is going to give me plus two. Oh, but I checked the commercial hub, and that's going to give me plus three. So although it's not always about the adjacency bonus, when it comes to things like that, and you're trying to decide between those two things, that could be the deciding factor where you place where and in what order you go ahead and you do that.
2: Right. And other factors could come into play. Like, for instance, if uh, if your neighbor who, you know, again, might become belligerent is starting to develop more advanced units than you, then, you know, that uh, campus is probably going to look a lot more appealing than the commercial hub because you're going to need the research in order to catch up in technology and upgrade your units in order to stay competitive. Otherwise, that other civ might see that you're weak and will take advantage and
1: uh, invade you. Maybe you should consider the Gatman at that point.
0: So it depends on to you attacked
1: you probably wanna
0: Yeah, it depends it. on if they're sitting on your border looking over you going, hmm, tasty, then it's encampment time. But if they're if you're just seeing a few advanced units just like zooming by every once in a while, then you might be okay with going for the campus first. Yeah,
1: well you can only do so much with a great general and like unit stacking. So yeah, at some point you need technology as well, even if you're militant.
3: Be definitely aware of the other civilizations that are around you. I mean, yes, and in the last uh, episode where it was being talked about on the show, episode 351, there was a whole conversation about barbarians. And if you have barbarians enabled and they're coming towards you, in addition to that defense, you know, having that pillaged early on, or even worse, having them just sit on that hex so you can't even repair the dang district, Um, maybe at that point, it's maybe the priority right now is... Not the district placement, other than locking in the cost, but go ahead and change what it is that you are constructing there. Same thing with buildings inside the district. I mean, just in general, you start building something and you switch over to something else, when you go back, you don't have to start all over again. The game is remembering the investment that you've already put into whatever that construction is, and you can pick up where you left off. Now, that just doesn't apply to districts, but given we're talking about districts, it's, "Mm, you know, I could finish the campus, or I could construct a unit, and still be in control of my city, and then finish the campus, rather than the campus just needing another turn or two to finish, and someone has taken over my city. And then maybe lastly, on districts, perhaps, I think we alluded to it, but again, if you pay attention to the civilization that you are playing, you may in fact want a theater campus early, like if you are playing Greece, they're cheaper, you can get, this is getting into things that we're at I'm not going to get into, but there are other benefits to possibly constructing that early on in the game. And one of that, of course, the big thing is the district costs. So if it's cheaper and it's a yield that you can be using and culture early on in the game, that's something that mm, you know you're really going to have to invest in and look for. It doesn't come uh, as easily uh, necessarily as science and production. Then yeah, then go ahead and construct that and consider that. Or if you've got a really good adjacency for, oh my gosh, that's going to be a plus five, plus six culture how else are you going to be getting that from having to put the investment into constructing settlers and settling the cities etc so it can it can be worthwhile to have again look at that adjacency bonus pay attention to that and i kind of think again to go to go back to all of this make certain that your city can grow so that you can keep those options up in terms of the district type because you need that population in order to be adding more and more districts. But definitely, definitely do not think that every city should have absolutely every district in it. Even if you are not in immediate peril, that is not a good approach. I very much like that Civ Six has taken this approach of you need to be selective, you need to be thinking about lots of different variables to try to figure out what you're going to construct and when.
1: Man, it would be hard to grow to get every district in a city, like <laughs> even if you wanted to. It's like, okay, it's well, very inefficient yeah. and
3: costly. actually, just to be able to grow the city to be like, well, I guess I could pile in lots of internal trade roads for food because I'm not going to be able to work that tile for food and that tile for food because I want this district and that district. I mean, there is that kind of inherent limiter. But at the same time, if you're like, oh, I got to have every district in every city. No, no, you, you do not want
2: that. I mean, you would need like 20 population in order just to support all the specialty districts.
3: Yeah, and the other sources that you would rely on that are um, open to interruption more easily than this city can support this population because of the tiles that are being worked and the buildings that are, yes, in some cases constructed um, within particular districts, including the city center granary. And and, uh, if you're on a river watermill, help you grow that much earlier to be able to get you to the next point to be able to construct the next district that you're looking to do looking to have. And, you know, all of those options for different districts to construct require you to be pushing through uh, technology, and in some cases civic trees. Huh? That's huh?
2: right. Not only do you need population in order to build your districts, but you also need to first research the appropriate technology or civic. Uh, i trying to think if there are any districts that are unlocked by civics. I think some of the civilizations have a unique district that's in a civic. Uh, uh, other than that, it's just like neighborhoods, right? I was going to say the neighborhoods, yeah. Neighborhoods. Yeah, I, I can't. I, I can't think of any specialty district that's unlocked by a, uh, by a civic. But uh, anyway, yeah, uh, technologies and civics are very important. Uh, we mentioned earlier that early game culture can be very important, and a big part of that is because uh, governments are a very important thing in Civ 6. So you definitely want some early game culture, whether it's coming from a monument or an early theater square. In order to make sure that you get to that first uh, government, because that's going to unlock additional policy cards, which will help you out a lot. Um, But a big thing about navigating the tech and civic trees is uh, planning for and trying to get the eurekas for technologies and the inspirations for civics. And every single tech and every single civic has like a unique little, uh, for lack of a better term, like mini quest. That you could do to uh, unlock the Eureka or Inspiration, which will instantly give you 40% of the cost of that technology. Like, instantly, at the snap of a finger, as soon as you uh, finish the requirement. And then you just have to research the remaining 60%, and you've unlocked the tech. So, So if you get the Inspiration, or the Eureka, for every single technology in the technology tree... You are cutting down the time it took to research every tech in the game by a whole forty percent, which you know is nothing to sneeze at.
1: It's one of the strongest in the game. That being said, that's practical to get absolutely everything without exception. So you're going to pick your spots, but you can get a lot of them, and you should try to get you should try to get them if you can.
2: Uh, yeah, there's edit. certain ones that are super easy that you will probably just accidentally trip over every yep. single game. <laughs> uh, meeting another civilization to get the writing, Eureka, uh, that's going to happen uh, sooner or later. So it's just a matter of like maybe the map type. If you're on some weird like islands map or something like that, maybe you're isolated uh, from all the other civs by an ocean and you cannot get that in. Uh, that eureka early in the game but that's like the only situation is if you send your scouts out you will eventually run into someone else's scout or city and you will get that eureka uh other ones are maybe not so easy uh there's uh i think one technology i'm blanking on which one it is that requires you to have built two forts within your territory uh I pretty much never get that one. I don't know. Maybe Phil does. I don't know how much he likes forts.
1: I've gone uh, for it just to get it, like trading production for science, basically. But yeah, like that one is comparatively rough.
2: Right. Uh, and in that case, like the time it would take to build uh, military engineers and put down forts, you could probably have just researched 100% of the tech cost in the meantime. So it's, it's pretty, a lot yeah. of times just not even worth
1: yeah, the question is, can you research something else that's more beneficial first and then use the production to get your hands on that, basically? Yeah,
3: exactly. would be exactly you'd
1: consider doing it? Um, yeah.
3: Yeah, in your game, you want to be looking at... <laughs> but in okay, practice, it's pretty rare. It, it's, okay, uh, I need this particular technology... And So for example, writing. Um, I need to get to writing so I can construct a campus district so I can be competitive in my research. And that was talked about in episode 351. You're going to need to research to get to better this, that, and everything else. Oh gosh, I'm not going to be able to meet somebody, so therefore I don't research that technology. Don't approach it as, I can't get that Eureka right now for that tech, or I can't get that inspiration for that Civic, so therefore I should not do it. It often comes down to, in your mind, I could be researching this or this right now. Both of those are a particular advantage to me. Hey, what is the time and investment in order to get that particular Eureka for this tech versus that one. Like Phil said, sometimes you are investing production in order to get that science. You're getting that science because you invested that production in order to get that Eureka, and now you don't have to put it into the science it's very good to whatever tech that you are thinking of researching or it's coming down to to being able to see what that is i do not i do not memorize most of these it is very good within the game itself to be able to tell you you look at the civic tree you look at the the technology tree it's going to tell you right underneath in a little bar underneath that what that boost is going to be and if you do get that boost that game is going to notify you and you're going to see that so kind of that navigation is my gosh, it's already to my advantage to be getting this uh, technology and this Civic right now, you know what? That's what the Eureka and that's what the Inspiration is. That is worthwhile because by doing that, I'm benefiting myself in addition. And if I don't do that and I have to put in the other 40%, am I really that any farther ahead? So it really comes, comes down to what it is that you're trying to do and then take advantage and the timing of that advantage in order to get that boost.
2: And another kind of uh, intermediate or advanced uh, tip that I would like to recommend is that uh, you can partially research a technology or civic, right? You can always switch to something else in the middle of researching something. So um, something that I do a lot is uh, if I'm, I I want to get a tech earlier, but I, I, also think that in a few turns I might be able to get that Eureka. Like, say, maybe it's uh, maybe it's the Eureka for, I don't know, shipbuilding, which I think requires that you build two galleys. Well, maybe I'm four turns away from building my second galley. I can start, start researching shipbuilding and then, then get that Eureka, and then stop and switch to something else when I get to that 60%, because the game's UI will also show you the difference, uh, the little bar that fills... Uh, will show where the eureka uh, starts and ends, so you can you know maybe spend like uh, if that technology is going to cost you like seven turns to research, you could maybe do four turns of researching it, then stop, finish that second galley, and then get the eureka to finish the other one hundred percent of it. And that's something that I do a lot, which is that I will uh, research half of a tech, and then I will stop and switch to something else, and then work towards getting the eureka to get the rest of that uh, science for that tech. And as far as I know, there is no decay on research or uh, civic investment. So there is not. It, yeah. So, so it's, it's completely free. You're not going to like your people are not going to forget the half of shipbuilding that they already learned uh, in the time that it takes you to build that second galley. If you stop researching it, you you keep all of it. So there's no reason to stop, stop researching the tech when you get to that 60% mark and then try to earn the Eureka uh, if
3: that Eureka actually is achievable. And same goes for the civics and earning the inspirations. It's an excellent point because in that way you could actually be doing double technology and double civic research that you get to that halfway point and I'm going to finish that research in that tech and that civic by performing this action in the game while I am directing my scientists and my Whomever term here for the for the civics are researching this. So I guess kind of related to that is if you know you can get that forty percent discount, and hey, I could go ahead and I could I could get that uh, mini quest. I could have that accomplished. But you know what? I'm just going to keep on researching this anyway. Then. It's not so much that you're behind, I'm not necessarily saying you're behind, but you're going to miss out on an opportunity to be a little bit farther ahead because your tech, in this way, your technology and your civic research is not dependent on your beaker output and your culture output per turn completely when you pay attention to these things. And that can be very, very powerful.
0: Yeah, you could wait till you build both the Slingers to get the Eureka for Archery, or you could just go ahead and research that and get those Barbarians off your lawn.
2: Right, yeah. Another common strategy that I like to employ is that uh, at the very beginning of the game, I'll adopt the uh, Goji policy that uh, speeds up the production of all the ancient uh, melee and ranged units. I'll build three Slingers, and then as soon as I unlock uh, Archery, uh, I'll upgrade them all to ar- Archers, and I suddenly have 40% of Machinery, you know, completed because of the Eureka.
0: Now, when you kind of... Have, when you do ones where you have to build units, it also has a side bonus of it... Uh, strengthens, strengthens up your army so you look like less of a target, even if you are going for something more peaceful.
1: Which is hard.
3: Exactly. And if you are wondering, if you're a Civilization five player, and you're wondering, gee, this technology tree looks smaller, what gives? I'm getting ripped off. Actually, no, no, you're not. It's because it's been split from the Research tree and into the Civics tree. And if you take... The uh, technology tree and the civics tree and compared it to the research tree uh, in Civilization 5, even before either of the Rise and Fall and Gathering Storm expansion packs, it's already that much larger. So when you're trying to complete or it's, you know what, I I don't need this particular tech, I need this tech that's two or three down, then okay, save yourself some time on the technology that you're thinking, I, I don't. Really need, but I can get the eureka for it. Sometimes it's not about getting necessarily to shipbuilding, although that's important. No, you want to be able to get to square rigging, for example, to get your frigates. And if that's your goal, then have a look at the prerequisite technologies and the inspiration for the Civic or the eureka for the technology and think is there anywhere along the way here that I can increase the output or more accurately decrease the time it's going to take me to get that? because not all of the time, you've got to be selective, but a lot of the time it can be, boy, in order to invest in the infrastructure to be able to get that, it's going to be a fraction of the time for this, or it could even be the same amount of turns, but you could be constructing something else in your cities instead, and improving some other infrastructure element or some other quest of your own that has nothing to do with this particular system. But yes, the most humorous parts are, hey, congratulations, you have... Uh, accomplish the eureka you have reached the inspiration for this or the eureka for that and you're like i'm sorry what
0: oh
3: (laughs) (laughs) it will happen we should point out a
0: lot of there's going to be quite a few times in the game where you're going to do that you because none of us have this memorized that's why we all go look at the tech tree and then you're just playing along and oh i did the eureka well okay then uh bonus points i mean in in case of the golden ages and things like that, yes it is bonus points so
3: and you you'll benefit from that and if it's but wait a minute i haven't even started researching this technology yet or this civic yet does that mean i won't get the inspiration no as as jason mentioned like you can be getting the inspiration or the eureka for a tech that's already one or two or more down the road necessarily because you have completed whatever that mini-quest happens to be. And then pay attention to that. If it's incidental, pay attention to that game notification to find out what that boost was and then take the time to go and have a look at the technology tree or the civics tree. And you may at that point decide, "Mm, actually that's going to influence what I'm going to research next or heck, or actually I'm going to switch to this now because now it's a fraction of the cost. And hey, look, I can use that more quickly. There are also other things in the game that you can benefit from the Eurekas and Inspirations. For example, city-states. Certain city-states will have particular quests, and sometimes that quest will be the Eureka and the Inspiration, so then not only do you benefit that from the technology tree and the Inspiration, but hey, you get an envoy there too. But quite frankly, those kind of things are... Our bonus, And we're trying to focus on a general guide for now kind of intermediate to advanced players. And I, I'm kind of in my mind thinking we're in the intermediate portion of the game. And you're probably not so much of a beginner anymore. Because regardless of your difficulty level, you've survived to this point in the game. Oh I'm okay, unless you've done an advanced start, but let's not go there. You've survived to this point in the <laughs> game. So... <laughs> Of course, I just had to throw those people under the bus because, you know... Well, Advanced sick.
1: Start is objectively one of the best ways to play, to be fair.
3: <laughs> it's As much as I rag on it, it, it can definitely be a way to, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do at this point in the game because I'm so unfamiliar with it. Or oh my gosh, I'm bored with this earlier part of the game. So yes, you can do an Advanced Start and be able to, be able to realize that and to be able to see certain things that perhaps you didn't otherwise. But Eurekas and Inspirations are... As much as you might say, oh my gosh, you you know, you don't have to memorize anything. It's like a lot of things in life. You don't have to remember what it is. You just have to remember where to go to remind yourself of what it is. And that's going to be in the game, your technology and your civic tree. Pay attention to these things. Incidental boosts are great, but what's much better is when it's much more purposeful because you plan for it. But of course, you can't plan for everything because, you know, you've been declared war on. You've been downed. Uh
0: Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Better call Phil.
3: Or maybe you were planning
1: for it, because you're the one who declared. (gasps) What? So, warfare against other civs and human players. And admittedly, I wouldn't be the best person for this, Uh, but most of us don't do a lot of uh, high-end competitive PvP, so I'm probably the best candidate in this group. But uh, certainly, you can find people who are, like, deity-class players who regularly do PvP who could probably correct me on a few things. Uh, That said, I have fought other humans in very so so there are some takeaways here Um, first of all it's a very big difference if you are fighting an AI civilization versus if you are fighting (laughs) a player civilization these are night and day the AI moves units very poorly it doesn't have any long range planning it's not going to particularly notice if you are advancing a big force other than the standard border rules like crybaby Mm. stuff and even that doesn't cause it to massively reposition its units in advance Uh, whereas like If you're fighting a human, and since you are a human, you should also be doing this, Uh, you should be able to see attacks coming very easily by just throwing some scouts or other zero-maintenance units uh, around your civilization like a net to see anything coming. Same thing for naval invasions. You really don't want a whole bunch of troops inside your borders by surprise. You you want at least a few turns to react and move your troops. And uh, you can do this with scouting, and you should do this with scouting, because the production investment is... Very negligible, and the maintenance is often either free outright or also pretty negligible. Uh, so that's an investment that uh, you should pretty much always do. When it comes to fighting other people, it's changed a little bit over the patches, uh, but catapults still suck. Battering rams are a bit tougher to use now, probably still the way to go in the early game. Uh, I'm getting kind of unspuny because there's a lot to talk about. Like if you're trying to defend yourself, if you're trying to like take cities... If you're trying to win the game outright versus just expand for some extra cities so that you're competitive in the long run, uh, these are all viable. So like if you're getting rushed by the computer, for example, you're probably going to get like eight warriors against you on deity really early. And you want to take your two to three warriors and put them on defensive terrain so they can get easily surrounded and then shoot them with archers from behind that. And uh, that'll take care of early rushes. If you're actually attacking somebody, absolutely invest. In, uh, in in an encampment and build the project to get a great general. If, if you're not going to get one, like, you know, almost immediately anyway, or by the time you attack anyway, or if there's any threat, any, somebody else will get it, build to get the great general. The the plus five is very important. The way it works on units is that a plus five from, like, 65 to 70 is worth just as much as going from 10 to 15. That's different from earlier saves. Correct. Plus the game say, uses difference.
2: the the difference... In the unit's combat strengths rather than the uh, percentage of the total combat strength of the units that are fighting. So, even just a plus one combat bonus is a substantial difference throughout the entire game.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah Unlike previous code, iterations. You're going to Sith, fight early. Use Oligarchy. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yes, because Oligarchy is going to give all your land melee units an additional combat strength and additional experience as well.
1: Yeah, so you want to stack that in great general. You want to stack as many combat modifiers as you can. And as you progress in the game, I wouldn't neglect culture because you can unlock access to both cores and armies, which also boosts the strength of your units by fusing them together. Uh, They don't do any dances beforehand in Dragon Ball Z. They just fuse. (laughs) That being said, the combat strength bonus bonus is pretty substantial for both cores and armies. And And if you played...
2: Civ 3, the core and armies is basically the, the same thing that was in Civ 3, where you can combine two or three units together and it becomes a bigger, stronger unit. In Civ 3, it just gave them more hit points, but in uh, Civ 6, it's greater combat strength. And I think also, uh, then indirectly, they survive long.
1: Yeah, a lot of that combat strength will make you survive uh, but also, there comes a point where you can only put so many units into a given space. So concentrating your troops that way also concentrates your damage, so you improve your killing power. And also, you you, you remove the enemy's ability to kill your units as easily, so long as you're not just like sending in a single army unit at somebody. Uh, as long as you have a reasonable troop count, uh, they are very powerful. And
2: another uh, important bonus that a lot of especially beginner players might overlook is flanking and support bonuses and you might also overlook the zone of contr- uh, control rules so uh flanking and support bonuses you actually do have to research a civic uh in order to unlock them but it's it's pretty early in the game i want to say it's uh is it military tradition
1: i think so it's yeah, the one it's... you get for clearing a uh, camp
2: yeah, you get the uh, inspiration for it if you clear a barbarian encampment. So it's it's available very early in the game. It's, I think, an ancient or maybe early classical era civic. Um, but uh, the way that works is that if you have another unit next to your unit, then on defense, that unit gets, I think it's a plus two combat bonus, right? And then on mm-hmm. offense, if you are attacking a unit, an enemy unit, and another one of your units is adjacent to that enemy unit, then you get a plus two flanking bonus. And I I also believe that this stacks if you have multiple units. So, for instance, if you have a lone little enemy warrior wandering into your territory, and you surround him on all six sides by your own warriors, and then you attack with one of those warriors, you are going to get a plus ten... Flanking bonus from the other five warriors that are surrounding that enemy unit, which uh, oh, is a huge it. difference.
1: In the era of warriors, you won't have this research yet, but you can by classical. And now picture like just a standard swordsman fight, two swordsmen, but one side has the oligarchy, the great general, and they're going for the surrounded pound. This is where I say surrounded pound by the. Way. This is why I say it. <laughs> So you're getting, like, you you surround them on three sides, right? Because you have three movements. That's actually realistic. Uh, So you're getting six off that. You're getting another five from the general and another, what, four from oligarchy? Five, I think.
2: uh, Or no, it is just four. You're right.
1: Yeah. So six, five, and four. Yeah, that's uh, that's a 15-point difference. Now you're pushing two-shot territory if you can pull that off.
2: Right, and the Swordsman, I think, is a combat strength of 36. So you're talking about, like, a 40% boost in combat
1: Yeah, but we care about the absolute differences again. So we really, if we're assuming parity in tech, this is a huge swing. Like, it goes from being a relatively even fight to you kill that unit with two attack. And uh, now they can't attack you on the ensuing turn. They are just dead.
2: Right. And if you can soften that enemy swordsman up with, uh, say, a crossbowman strike or two, I mean, you're also going to
1: take negligible damage to your own uh, attacking melee unit. Even just archer. Unless you're fighting Congo or something. Archers are still pretty good against swords. They're not great, but they certainly damage them. They make a difference.
2: True. And in addition, there's uh, also uh, units have a combat penalty if they are wounded. So if you do do a ranged attack first and then attack with your melee unit, then the defending unit is going to have uh, a, a slight penalty to their combat strength because of the
3: fact that they are damaged, which will also swing the battle further in your favor. Another related thing, too, that when you're attacking units, uh, rivers, watch about attacking across a river. There will be a combat penalty for you if you are not paying attention to that, if your unit does not have the promotion to avoid that.
2: Well, terrain in general, attacking into a hill or into a forest is also a pretty substantial, I think, combat penalty. It's either a combat penalty for you or it's a combat bonus for the defender. I don't remember.
1: It's defensive terrain. Either way, it it amounts to the same thing, but... Uh, like, rivers are a big enough deal that it,
3: you,
1: could, you would consider the value of it defensively, because it also kills movement point crossing it in hostile Correct. terrain, yeah, or even your own terrain early on. So it, it's very difficult for an enemy to surround a city with a river if you have units contesting at all.
2: Right, and so because you get all of these bonuses from flanking and support, it is very, uh, a very good idea to move your units first into position to make the attack, and then after all the units are in position, make the attacks. Because again, you can use one movement point on a unit, and then move a different unit, and then go back to the previous unit and move it or attack again. So if you've got uh, an enemy unit that's you know two tiles away from your army, you can move all of your melee units one tile closer to it so that they are all adjacent, and then go back through and attack with each of them, and now all of them are getting the uh, flanking combat bonus. Whereas if you had just moved each one in one at a time, the first unit would have no flanking bonus, the second unit would have one flanking bonus, and the third unit would have two, uh, and you're gonna um, take more damage,
3: take more losses by doing that. A related thing to add to that is when you're in combat and we're talking about units, pay attention in certain instances about what units you're going up against and what units that you have. The one that I want to add, particularly as you see early on into the mid-game, and I'm actually thinking about episode 351 and, oh my gosh, it's barbarian horsemen are coming in or any horsemen are coming in, then it's not just about the absolute attack strength It's also about the bonus that you get against that type of unit. So, oh my gosh, here comes some mounted units. You're going to want some spears, or a little bit later on, you're going to want some pikemen. Even if that's just to kind of be at the front line, I'm not saying you're going to have everything pikemen, but those things are coming in. Those units can target those units to kind of clear the field. And then you've got your other units, so your siege units, your other melee units, your ranged units to be able to continue to do the job because often what's going to happen uh, and then we saw this in in Civilization V too uh, and even some earlier games that if it's oh it's warfare this is the current strongest unit that I can construct I want all swordsmen and nothing but swordsmen you're, at the times you're going to need to pay attention to combined arms, and that includes what what it is that you are sending, the order in which you're attacking, like Jason was getting at, who's in the front and who's in the back, because depending upon you know and who can reach you, based on the unit movement that was talked about a couple of episodes ago, you don't want units to get absolutely decimated before you have a chance to use them. So paying attention to the unit class, to be able to kind of clear that field or in order to ensure that your field of units are going to make it to whatever their objective is, which is probably attacking a city at, at some point or otherwise trying to you know defend your city, that's also something to consider.
0: Yeah, when you're on attacks, sometimes being uh, strong units, the defense on the city you're going after is determined by the strongest unit that they've made so far. So you can be in the middle of attack and watch all the cities around suddenly jump up by 20 points because Oof.
3: they've, yeah. I yeah. nasty surprise early in my time plane since <laughs> It it is a pain. It honestly is a pain because there will be times and you could go and check the military strength. Why is it that the military strength is zero, but I've got these defensive strengths that my units can simply not make a dent in very quickly and they're going to have the chance to between the walls on their cities and their encampments absolutely destroy what it is that I have. So it's definitely an advantage to the defender in that particular situation but you can also use that as well because that's AI. going to be all of, your, all of your cities are going to benefit from that even if that yeah, you, like, you constructed is halfway or you know the other side of your freaking empire
0: yeah you're under siege but you could build a stronger unit and boost all the defenses in all your cities and also unlike the AI you're smart about targeting you can target all the melee units you can sit here and siege me down all you like but unless you've got a horse or melee to move in you can't take the city that's well, kind of
3: the other may thing. May
1: yeah, Romans really have such a hard on for catapults. They just, uh, they have nothing else.
0: They do. It's,
1: tr- it's
3: true. They it do. doesn't matter
0: what era. I'm going to surround you with siege units, but I'm not going to bother to bring more than like two melee or two city capable of taking city units because you know taking with scouts is hilarious. But
3: was there anything else we wanted to add about now? By
0: What's the that?
1: Way? What's Does that? anyone use catapults in the classical era now? Because I I still. Don't
0: think they're that good. why why would I do that when I can build a bunch more swordsmen and just, you know, surround and pound, as you said.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well cities, I, I, will uh, build, buff, so, I will usually uh, build their stuff buff. I will usually build one or two as they used to be. Uh, yeah, I, I I usually build one or
2: two of them because the, there's almost always that one city state that has the uh, quests to build a catapult. So I'll just do it to oh. get the envoys. Oh,
3: so you're not doing it for the combat, you're doing it for the envoys. Okay. <laughs> no, because uh, catapults
2: do pretty
3: thoroughly
2: <laughs> suck. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know if we want to get into the reasons for that. but I would uh, say Basically, no, they're but... just not they're not good at their jobs. Like, at no, all. they
1: are a little better with great generals.
2: Correct, because then you can move and fire in the same turn. Yeah. There
1: is that. If you you do do have a great general... I'm really good. uh, Not catapults, but the upgrade. Uh, Once you get to artillery in particular, uh, it starts being one of your best ways to crack cities in single player. Uh, Less so in multiplayer, because um, people will probably kill them with their unit. (laughs) In single player, with artillery armies, you can take any city in the game. Even when they have like rocket arty and mech infantry, it doesn't matter. You can still kill that. Well in that but late in the
2: game you things. also have cores and armies, so you're probably stacking uh three artillery together to make a uh, yeah, an artillery yeah. army that is very Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
3: I, I think we're moving in front in terms of warfare against other civs and human players, moving from the this is how units can attack your units and how you can attack their units to when you're getting into city warfare specifically. And I think it was kind of mentioned in passing, but I think we should state explicitly that if you want to capture a city, that wonderful siege unit that you have and that ranged unit you have, you're going to be really, really disappointed. You need uh, again either you need a melee unit or you need a mounted unit so that you can go in and ultimately capture that city. Keep, I think that's, I think sometimes even as you know as we're talking about this, I'm like, oh gosh. Yeah, I think sometimes we can forget that. It just becomes so automatic, and if it doesn't become yeah. automatic for you when you're first playing the game, it will at some point, even if you have to learn by <laughs> lots of error, to remember to bring a melee unit along with you, probably. And, it,
2: and it's any unit that makes a melee attack. So if it's a coastal city, it could also be a uh, melee mm-hmm. naval unit, uh, can uh, attack and capture a uh, a coastal city. So it's, it's melee units like warriors and swordsmen, it's anti cav units like spearmen and pikemen, it's uh, mounted units like horsemen, and it's naval melee units like galleys are all capable of capturing cities. Also, fringe
3: yeah. case, recon units. Yes, that's <laughs> technically a <French> scout who <laughs> is capture a
1: city. Not that fringe. It's fairly common for good players to capture cities with scouts. Not in PvP, but against the AI. But only scouts, though,
2: because once they upgrade to skirmishers or rangers, they actually do become a ranged, ranged unit, and at that yeah. point
3: cannot capture cities. I believe. Yeah, so the recon by recon, meaning definitely a, a scout. Um, yeah. The thing about, we talked about siege units in terms of the siege type of units, but if you're talking about cities, a city itself can also come under siege, which has a new significance, because if that invading army... Can establish zone of control on all passable tiles surrounding the city center, the city center being the hex that your city is on, it will no longer be able to repair the damage it suffers. Otherwise, the city is going to automatically regain about 20 points of health per turn in an attack. So even if you can't surround it that completely, it's kind of one of those things where I've got a really superior unit. Man, look at, the, look at the base military strength of this. And look at the strength of that city. It doesn't have walls, so you don't need to be concerning yourself with, for example, bringing a battering ram to help bypass that. But if it's just that one unit, you're probably going to sit there a while trying to capture that city. You are going to want to, as much as possible, on a given turn, attack a city, whether that's melee, whether that's ranged, so you're getting that down, because you don't want it to be, hey, I can do 10 points of attack every turn. Yeah, but it's automatically going to get 20 points back. You are not going to progress. And that's even excluding the whole, my gosh, do they have other units that could come in and hurt me? Or, oh my gosh, they did just, in fact, get walls, and now I need to make a not-so-hasty retreat.
0: Yeah, being able to do that siege surround, especially when you're closer to even on technology, can really make a big difference because holding them down and not letting them repair anything or not letting them get health back, that can shave a couple of turns off of taking a city easily before they can get more units to you and before they build that other unit that suddenly makes them pop up by 20 points in defense strength.
2: And this is one of the places where building cities along rivers can also make a big difference. Uh, or on the coast, or adjacent to water, because Zone of Control does not cross rivers. So if you have, say, a city that's tucked in the bend of a river, where it has a river adjacent to it on, like, three or four sides, the opponent is going to need to put a melee unit on every... Well, I don't think it has to be a melee unit. I think it can be any unit. Uh, would have to put a unit on every one of those four tiles across the river in order to be able to put the city under siege, because Zone of Control does not cross rivers.
3: The other thing to be watching when you're attacking a city is if there's a unit in that city. And sometimes, sometimes that can be giving that city an additional strength. And It's, it's suddenly like, oh my gosh, what is going on here? So if there's a unit inside that city, if you can um, bait that unit out of the city, you're going to make it that much more easier f- to kill it, number one, and then it's not going to be able to give not only that city that additional strength— But that's also going to be one less thing that on the AI's turn, or human turn even, that's going to be able to then turn and attack one of the units that you've got right adjacent to the city.
2: Yeah, and if that uh, unit in the city happens to be a ranged unit, that uh, can also make it a lot harder to capture the city, because uh, if the city has walls as well, now they're getting effectively two bombardments uh, per turn which can put a dent in your army pretty
3: quickly uh, if it takes you more than just two or three turns to bring down the city's defense. And if your city is the one that's under siege, then kind of flip that advice. Oh my gosh, look at all of these melee units and all of these range units. What do I do first? target the melee units you can be absolutely down to zero health and zero fortification health and if all they have left is their range and their siege they can't take your city and that could mean the difference the time that you need to either construct a unit in that city and or bring units from somewhere else in the empire in order to be able to defend it because if those units are still there yes you're not going to be able to do much in terms of restoring that city health strength but you can at least delay the loss of that city and the possibility that on capturing the city, unless it's your capital, that they could raise that thing. And you probably don't want that. So and not to mention not...
0: everything that's going to get raised, like districts and other things, because you always lose something when they take a city.
2: Right. And uh, the units inside of a city also do not take damage when the city is attacked, uh, which is a rule that uh, kind of annoys me, because there's no way of damaging you know, that annoying crossbowman that's camped in the city. Um So if you do camp a crossbowman or archer or whatever inside of a city to attack the invading force, uh, that unit in the city cannot take damage, which means you're always going to be attacking at full strength, uh, and it's basically not vulnerable to counterattack at all. The only way it dies is if the city is captured, in which case all military units in the city are just instantly
3: destroyed. Uh, Related to that, of course, and that could be uh, a land unit if it's a coastal city. If it has any naval units in there, that would also be the loss of that naval unit. And similarly with your encampment, if there's a unit inside that encampment, you are attacking the encampment. That unit that's in there, if that happens to be whatever it is on its turn, it can stay inside the safety of the encampment and do whatever it wants to do to surrounding it. It's only going to die if and when the defenses of the encampment are down, that then the encampment can be taken. Which, by the way, could also be uh, should also be sure. part of your consideration in attacking cities. If there's a way for you to get to a city that's going to be outside of the two range of that encampment. Or at least the majority of your units, at least, you know, one melee unit in particular, or, you know, one important ranged unit, whatever it happens to be, then you go ahead and you do that. Because sometimes you are going to find that if the AI is smart, probably more incidental, something I see more with human players, that you have kind of those interlocking cities, and with the encampments and their walls makes it very difficult to find a space where you're not going to be able to at least get bombarded by one of those things on a turn rollover. So if you can do that, then you increase the likelihood that you're going to get the city and then you get the city with the encampment and now you can start using that instantly to defend your new holding.
2: Yeah, AI really loves to build its cities very close together. They'll often build cities like the minimum three to four tiles apart. And when they do that, That means that when you're moving into their territory, you are almost always going to have some of your units that will be open to being attacked or bombarded from multiple cities. So if they have walls in all their cities and they have a crossbowman in all of their cities, you know, you might have one unit that's potentially going to take four ranged attacks that turn because they're going to be two cities bombarding it and two crossbowmen. And if you throw in some encampments there as well, you're talking about, you know, up to five, six, maybe seven or eight bombardments uh, being available, which... You know, will
3: almost certainly kill several units when you're attacking a city and it has walls. And you have your battering ram. Make certain that the battering ram has been escorted by a military unit, <laughs> uh, because uh, poof, it, it goes away uh, if yeah, the unit and we d- and we don't mean. Himself. We don't mean the great person kind of poof where they get ejected somewhere. I mean, it, it. it is gone. So that with regards to the battering ram. And also, if the city has walls, do this little thing called the mouse over and see what kind of walls you have. Because if you have a battering ram and suddenly those ancient walls are now Renaissance walls, your battering ram is not going to be effective, at least not as effective as you want it to be. So we're talking That's the, the, point you know, the midpoint think. of the game. If you have the battering ram, it is really cheap within your territory to upgrade it to a siege tower. Not even talking about discounts you can get through social policies or anything like that. It is worthwhile having that and making sure that you have that technology, because that siege tower to go over to the Battering Ram will take care of Renaissance walls and ancient walls, whereas the Battering Ram can only deal with ancient walls. And there's absolutely nothing like when you are right there on the front, and you're ready to take it, and all of a sudden, oh gosh, they just upgraded to Renaissance walls, and so, I mean, yes, it's, it's greater defense strength, but it's really about the walls, because that is supposed to be bypassing that strength, so your melee units can attack the city like there aren't walls there at all, and it can be really crying sad face. But if that does happen to you, then just be spiteful, and if you can, pillage, pillage, pillage on your way out to damage their infrastructure, mm-hmm. and and come back it, it, to get that siege Get that battering ram to safety, move away as quickly as you can, pay attention to their ability to bombard you and other units around you. So, I mean, if you have to make a retreat and you have to back off for a few turns, if that means you have to take a truce, then you absolutely do it. Because if there are the walls there and you're not able to bypass that, you are going to very quickly find that, well, you don't have as much maintenance for your units anymore because you don't have units left anymore. So indeed, don't forget walls yourself as well, particularly your fringe cities. Anybody that you think might be attacking you anytime in the near future, um, get that up. And I think sometimes we even can get into, oh, you know, I need to be able to to defend myself. So uh, I want I want some greater units. I want some greater units. Yes, you're going to want units, and you're going to want units, if not at par, then at least be able to reasonably overwhelm the superior uh, unit with inferior ones, but really walls are going to be your defense to help soften up units that are getting that close to your city, and in some cases that is your only defense for some cities while you continue to construct units and or get units to the front to help defend it.
1: And again, having the site in advance makes a big difference. for
3: yes, so def- you've have it. yes, you've got to have the site. You're, you're attacking that and it's like, hey, how come I can't bombard this right now? Well, you need to be able to have site on the city in order to be able to do that. So keep that in mind.
0: Yeah, pick a unit you don't mind sending to the front and letting you get bombarded with. And then when you've got the longer range units later in the game, like the artillery and stuff, that one unit can sit there on the front and you can annihilate walls in a couple of turns. It's
2: and don't underestimate navies. Uh, frigates and especially oh, yeah. battleships can be really powerful at bringing down the defenses of cities that are within one or two tiles from the coast.
3: Yes. I mean, if we're talking even later game, it's it can be kind of the difference between, well, do I wait to be able to get bombers and aerodromes and airplane units? N- Hopefully, I mean, some cases you may find yourself in that situation, but there are certain times when, yes, having those frigates and having those battleships are the preferred option to trying to have a land equivalent for that, because not only is it their greater strength, but, of course, if all they have are land units to deal with that, then they're not going to be able to touch your naval units on the coast while they bombard you, or you bombard them, I should say.
0: The the AI's Navy game is still pretty weak, so you're usually...
3: it yeah. really is. If you're fighting the AI, and I'm totally—I mean, Phil, you—you you mentioned about having the great general. Yes, that's really important for combat. Even though the you know the AI is is derp, but the equivalent on the the water with a great admiral, those things are nice to have. But you you're really. That's typically, I would say, not needed to have any kind of successful naval endeavor. It's kind of one of those things where if there is war and you're at the mid-game and you have frigates and they can reach at least some cities, their coastal cities, then you can use that as kind of a landing zone for your army and you can cripple them to some degree, their ability to respond to the emergency. And then you can move in further with your land units while saving your 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 land units for that combat and let the navy take care of the bombarding and in some cases if it's right on the coast then you could also have a navy naval melee unit take the city
1: although i would still get because it's nice for actually taking cities while the ai derps it, it's really still used very useful to have that beating on cities with frigates inside
3: and while there is the question of loyalty also when you are capturing cities if we're talking about uh yeah. since the rise and fall expansion pack After that, there's this thing when you capture uh, a city about repairing walls. That can definitely be useful if suddenly there's now the wave coming in um, and uh, repairing that. Uh, There is also about your city being attacked, and if you're able to repel them for... I forget, I don't know, I think it scales with game speed. It's it's more than a turn, it's like two or three or four turns or something like that, where there's going to be a build option in your city for repair outer defenses take that sometimes it may take one two three turns depending upon where you are in the game and the game speed but that is something to also keep in mind either a city of your own that you've kind of gotten a little bit of reprieve and go for that i mean it it depends on just how far down admittedly the defenses are maybe you don't want to take the turn or two turn or two for that right now but there are so many times when I've had to finish a battle with an AI and heal for 10, 15, 20 turns, and that city is still down in the defenses, and they haven't repaired the damage yet from what I did 15, 20 turns ago. So don't be the AI. Use that as an opportunity (laughs) to get that back up to full strength, because that investment will pay for itself. Trust me. Don't be the AI. Don't be that (laughs) fat. This whole episode... Don't (laughs) be That should have been this, the whole episode. Just don't be the AI, and you will win. (laughs) Wait, what?
0: (laughs) Don't behave like the a i anymore. you are.
3: oh, unless you're yeah, doing like one of those machine learning
1: things <laughs> I don't know what kind of supercomputer could play like tens to hundreds of thousands of games against itself in sim <laughs>
0: <laughs> could be oh. one learning right now you don't know, ah,
1: the true yeah, masochist. they might be doing it they might be doing it <laughs> The starcraft one has gotten incredible that a i is like amazing alpha star now, mm. Yeah. It's beating like the top pros, uh, the current building.
3: So, is this the part where we transition to dealing with warmonger grievances and loyalty then? Or is there something else on warfare before we get into that that we wanted to it, address? We could
1: spend an entire episode on warfare. It's, that's true.
0: But at the moment.
3: <laughs> All right. So, dealing with warmonger grievances and loyalty. And again, alluded to that if you are just playing vanilla Civilization VI. What's loyalty as a game mechanic? Uh, Don't worry about it. For the rest of us, and yes, that includes Gathering Storm. It's not like they introduced it in Rise and Fall and then didn't retain it in Gathering Storm, just to be clear. Uh...
0: (laughs) Yeah, also for the rest of us. Oh, God, face palm. Oh,
3: the loyalty. Actually, I want to kind of even start with the loyalty because it kind of segued from the capturing cities and the and the warmongering. Every city now has a loyalty rating, which of course can <coughs> rise and fall um, due to any but, number, um, number of factors. Um, loyalty. Uh, your population in the city. Uh, the greater the population, the greater the loyalty. Amenities. So those nice luxury resources that make your citizens happy, that increases loyalty. And you might be thinking, why? Why would I care? Well, there's this thing called rebelling if the city has loyalty issues, which I think in our collective experience, it's probably going to be more of an issue of cities you capture. But it is also possible for cities that you've built yourself to suddenly, if not instantly, but at some point in the game, realize that the amount of loyalty that is in the city is actually not enough in order to retain that loyalty, and then the count is on for when it would become a free city, which can be annexed by neighboring civilizations, which other civs, human, or AI could declare war on without declaring war on you and take that for themselves. Gur and Arg, and besides, if you have high loyalty in a particular city, you can use that loyalty to apply pressure to cities around them. So if you want to improve loyalty in a city, and you do, because the city you build or the city you capture, you're probably going to want to hold on to it, right? I mean, that's why it's part of your empire. So if you can maximize your cities and your citizens, so the population within nine tiles, and minimize foreign cities and cities within nine tiles, Fantastic, but of course if you're on the warpath, or another civ is on the warpath and taking your empire, that's probably not going to be possible for you. So what do you do? Construct a monument for plus one loyalty. uh, Or repair the existing monument that was damaged when you captured the city. Yes, or that. Establish a governor in the city, that will give you plus eight loyalty, and that can be any governor at all, and even though the game is going to tell you it's going to take, for example, uh, three turns for Victor or five turns for any of the other governors to get into the city, that's for their particular other effects, but the loyalty is instant applying. And you're probably going to need that, particularly if we're talking, you know, mid to late game, you're probably going to need a governor at least for a period of time to help establish that loyalty for you while you repair the monument, while you try to increase the size of the city, while you try to get additional amenities, etc., etc. You can also adopt some policy cards that will boost loyalty. So these policy cards, these social policy cards that are tied to your civics, and progressing through the civic tree allows you to get to particular government types so that you can run more of them there are there's a military policy for loyalty for the cities there's a diplomatic policy for loyalty for the city if you absolutely need it and you can uh, look into uh, again the different social policies to find that and there is also we talked about districts there is a district introduced in rise and fall called the government plaza and that government plaza is plus eight loyalty but you can only have one you can only have one in the entire empire in your entire empire, yes. So, uh, kind of, in a way, kind of reminds me of the Forbidden Palace in Civilization Four. You can only have one, but my gosh, is it powerful, and it can be Very important uh, when you need it. Uh, Your diplomat, which is your governor, talking about a governor, if they have the, there's a particular promotion uh, she can get where foreign cities within nine tiles get plus two loyalty towards your civilization, or your other cities within nine tiles gain plus two loyalty per turn towards your civilization. So kind of related to that, when you're capturing cities, the loyalty may... And oftentimes for me, it can be determined in part what city you're going after first, because you're either going to want to be able to hold that city, not, not that it necessarily going to a free city is is negative, because it doesn't instantly go back to the civ that you captured it, but it does mean it's no longer yours, and then you're going to capture it, which I suppose it sometimes might mean if you capture the city, and then it becomes a free city, and you capture it again, and the population is getting lower and lower and lower, you're not going to have as much loyalty issue with them subsequently, but that's still a major pain in the arse. Uh, I guess kind of the other things, those are the big things, I think, for for, uh, the loyalty aspect. Um, There are other things that we're probably not going to get into in this episode, but there's the concept of Golden Ages and Dark Ages, which will affect you, so just be aware. If you're in a normal age, that's fine, but really, really try to avoid Dark Ages, where you're going to get a 50% loyalty hit from all of your citizens. If you can get a Golden Age, fantastic. That's going to give you plus 50%. Um, there's also utilizing spies and utilizing World Congress Resolution, but those are a bit more particular. And um, I mean with spies you've only got so many, and the World Congress Resolution you have really no control at all of what's going to be freaking proposed there, which is a darn shame. Uh, I wish there was a way we could address that. But those other things there, the, the loyalty, and if the loyalty is really bad, And I know Mackie and Phil in particular are probably going to laugh here because I've kind of developed this reputation in our uh, cooperative games, uh, Turncast on Saturday. But if the loyalty is really bad, you can, unless it's the capital, just go ahead and raise the dang thing. Because if you go ahead and raise the dang thing, because you're not going to be able to hold it long enough before it becomes a free city, which is definitely a distraction because then suddenly they have units that can go after you as well then, oh, suddenly the loyalty pressure on other nearby cities isn't so bad. So you can oh, be here, selective. I thought you are going to
1: talk about that game where you got capital, Flint.
3: <laughs> well, why would I talk about that, fell Fel? and can always trust you to bring it up. Just when it matters just, most. Thank I'm just you, sir. i uh, with
1: you. Honestly, I died that way once on Deity. Oh, yeah. If is... you're not careful, you can.
3: Oh, man. I, like, I think about the things that were introduced or changed in Gathering Storm and Rise and Fall, and I'm struggling to think of the concept of loyalty and rise and fall having as a big impact on how I do lots of things and think about lots of things in the game. Since the game came out, I don't think this can be understated. It can definitely be very powerful and to your advantage. And honestly, if you can at least have it so that loyalty is not an issue for you, a negative issue that is, then you're doing okay. Yeah, loyalty yeah, was a big game.
2: Like it, it, it changes the way you settle new cities. It changes the way you perform wars. It changes the ways that you, you know, act indirectly against other civs. It
3: was a, a big-time game change. It changes the way you value yourself as a gamer and... Oh, wait, what? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> causes you to ask questions about why am I still playing this game sometimes? Gurren arg, but... Don't let it get you down. Anything else about the loyalty aspect? Okay. Um, then I guess... Maybe one of the last things we end up talking about on this episode related to this, uh, the warmonger and grievances. I was so, so, so happy that Civilization 6 introduced a Cassius Belly system. In other words, this, this just war, this just reason that, depending upon what you choose, is going to incur diplomatic penalties that are considerable, somewhat, or little to absolutely none at all. And this gets down to let, let's start with first off, if you're denounced by an AI, then that should be a warning sign to you that if you're not about to be invaded, they're thinking about it because by declaring my excuse me by denouncing someone within a handful of turns, this triggers the cassius belly system, which there are a number of types of Cassius Bellies, but know that you're essentially looking at what? I think it's a, a third reduction in the warmonger grievances by declaring a formal war, which is kind of the very base Cassius Belly grievance as compared to what I like is a surprise war. Sometimes it's not a surprise at all. Um, but the And at that point, you can then start looking at, okay... What else is going on in my empire and their empire that I could use to leverage that grievance system and be able to use that? Because you might also be thinking, well, who cares if I've got all these warmonger penalties? Why do I care? What's the impact of not paying attention to this other than the AI going Gur and Arg? Well, you are going to notice a decrease in the growth in your cities and also in the production of your cities. And if that's what it takes for you to recognize, hmm. Maybe this is an issue, then that's fine. This is a thing that you can still mitigate, however, besides the using the Cassius Belly system and, and the grievances, and that is getting amenities. Uh, so it's always good to have at least some friends in the game, so if you can't domestically get some amenities for yourself, some luxury resources, you can trade for them and increase that. There are also social policies that decrease warmonger penalties, and sometimes quite honestly it can be worth just having a brief cooling off period of 10 turns or whatever you know that that piece and then going back into it because the amount of war warmonger penalty you're having apply to you it will decay over time but not while the war is still ongoing and i guess the other thing kind of with that if you're looking to declare war on somebody Um, you can, of course, try to get another civilization to join you if it's to your advantage. Or if, you know what, I'd like to declare war on this person too because, hey, why not? Dogpile? Hmm, that person is currently at war. You could potentially instantly not have to worry about denouncing a civ, giving them a warning that you're thinking about going after them, not giving you this wait period of five turns, but say, hey, can I join your war? through diplomacy, and if you join their war and it happens to be a Cassius Belly, then you gain the advantage of kind of, you know, joining in on that Cassius Belly, while also, if if not improving, at least not hurting your relation with another Civ that is also currently at war. Because after all, the enemy my enemy is indeed my friend at times.
1: Or you just declare a surprise war and win quickly.
3: <laughs> it's true. You don't have, sometimes actually doing the Cassius Belly is, is not worthwhile. It's just, let's not even give them a warning because it's not going to freaking matter and the world caring about it or your citizens caring about it, it's going to happen quickly enough that you're really not going to feel the effects or sure there are the effects but I'm that much farther ahead because look I just doubled my empire size in no time at all. And it's true that you have no role monger diplomatic penalty for war in the ancient era, but it starts to increase as the game goes on. And since we're talking about the midpoint of the game here, you know, Renaissance era, that's when it starts to be significant. So that's when it can definitely be to your advantage to start paying attention to this system and indeed using this system.
1: I'd also just like to point out, since I only did when we were not recording early,
3: that nations that are annexed, or even. Sorry, you cut off for me there, Farrell, just I know that's an yeah. important point.
1: <laughs> I just said uh, nations that are annexed don't have grievances, so that's always a solution.
0: They don't exist. They can't be mad at you anymore. Yeah. The other says might remember, but it goes away eventually, and they're not well, quite as mad at you as the civilization you may not existed.
1: Those new butthurt civilizations could also be convinced to not care in the same fashion.
0: There's oh, a fallback plan no matter what you start out wanting to do. Just kill everybody.
1: Yeah, just, just World Conquest, and then you could like launch a spaceship or something after that if you care. <laughs> I
3: don't think we're going to be touching upon the World Congress in this episode, but one thing to watch for if you're declaring war on lots of people is you may find that one of the civs that you declare on says, hey... This isn't very nice. Maybe I could drag someone else into the war by proposing a World Congress resolution. And sometimes that even happens after you completely wipe a civilization from the map, but hey, their resolution still goes through 5, 10, 15, 20 turns later, whatever the heck. So just keep in mind about, okay, who else is mad at me? Where are they? What's their power relative to mine? Because quite frankly, if another, if half the other civs in the game declare war on me and they're halfway around the world or all they can do is scratch the paint on my modern units I don't I'm not really going to care quite honestly but there can be times where it's oh not only did they just declare but it's not just to declare war for war's sake they're actively involved in this too and that that can get a little dicey so it is something to think about but really it comes down to at this particular point in time is your war weariness so significant your production slowed so much that you feel like it is slowing your momentum in the war or that you're feeling like you know it's one step forward two steps back then go ahead and take that pause and and let that decay and if shoot if you have that much warmonger uh, that, that much uh, in terms of grievances uh, excuse me a war weariness and you've got those grievances accumulated hopefully you've had sufficient success in your war that you can get something for those turns of peace uh, in compensation and then just pick up right back where you left off
0: it's very nice when they declare upon you then you beat them up enough that they pay you to go away
3: <laughs> It's true and sometimes it's oh hey thank you so much for joining that world congress resolution to declare war oh, on me could. because now I don't have to declare war on you <laughs> they get to be the bad guy exactly
2: and definitely do lots and lots of pillaging because it's basically free yields.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, pillaging was buffed to like stupid levels. It's so valuable, especially no to, like, if you enact same.
2: the policies that further buff uh pillage.
1: Yes. Yeah, it's ridiculously good.
2: And uh a call back to the first topic, if you pillage an enemy's districts, I mean that is like
3: very crippling. Yes, yeah, for you
1: it's just yeah. money. It's quite other good deals
3: like research. Science. Culture. Sometimes even faith. Oh, well, thank you. I'll just get that discount on a great person. Much appreciated.
0: Yeah. Oops, is that your campus? Well, you're not researching any better weapons anytime soon. True, sure, but I am.
3: And if you really want to cripple them and you can afford it, it's like, oh no, you're not gonna be able to repair this because I'm just gonna camp on here for a few turns. Or oh look at that. Hey, you just re- you just repaired that. I'm gonna go and pillage it again. That's also the other thing. If, you've, if you're pillaging, for example, um, uh, say a holy site, and there are multiple buildings in there, that can be multiple pillaging on the same hex in successive turns while you pillage each one of those buildings and then the district itself. Mm, yields.
0: Mm, pillaging?
3: Mm-hmm. So all of the, the time in, in production and or money you spent on that unit... I think it's just paid for itself, even if it is only pillaged, quote-unquote only pillaged. And maybe that kind of wraps back around on the warmonger uh, topic as well, is what is the purpose of this war, particularly when you're declaring, I would say? Are you just going in to I, I I don't want the cities, I don't want to have to deal with that if for no other reason than, oh my gosh, look at that defensive strength, but I just want to cripple what they're doing. I want to go in and, oh my gosh, you know they're not going to win space. I'm going to go in and pillage their spaceports. Or no, I'm going to absolutely destroy their economy. No more commercial hubs for you. That you deny them those values in the future while you get some benefit out, out of it in the process, and then you withdraw? Or that's what you do first, and then you move in? Or I'm not worried about capturing your cities right now. I just want to get rid of all of your units on the map. So it's... You know, warfare is not necessarily that you are at war with this person until one of you dies. It can be in stages. And if you keep that in mind and also look at what you think the AI is trying to accomplish, which is actually almost certainly to wipe you off the map, then, well, I think we've discussed quite extensively what you can reasonably do to live to see another turn. You take
1: all their cities, they can't take all of yours. <laughs> it's true. I
3: won't let them
2: take all my CDs. I will quit the game first. Ha 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 ha.
0: Okay. <laughs> well, yes, there is that. <laughs> kind of hard to rage quit exactly like that in multiplayer because other people are depending on you, and then then they don't have another AI to go clean up that's now stronger because they ate you.
1: It Depends whose game you're in too. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's true. What's happened in games like me and Graven are just like okay, <laughs> and just <laughs> shred them. <laughs>
3: So uh maybe even before just the closing here I saw on Civilization Fanatic Center in response to episode 351 which was kind of the first part uh which Canis entitled Console School uh Socrates said good episode being one of the PlayStation civ uh players this one was right up my alley you made some great points to apply to uh, in my games and although it was called Console School and this is kind of an extension of that for the console players sometimes returning to the basics if you miss something and you've been playing on the PC for some time, or you were there was an interruption in your play, sometimes it's good to review these things to make you realize, oh gosh, how come I didn't try this, or oh gosh, I understood that incorrectly, or I did understand correctly, and I but I didn't try that. Hopefully we've given you some more things to think about, which means you'll continue to play the game, which means you'll continue to listen to the show, which means you'll continue to inflate our ego. Uh... Uh, well, you know, you know, well, you know where I'm going with this, uh, you totally know, somewhere along great. the way, I can
1: inflate it just fine, regardless.
3: That sounds like a topic for another podcast altogether, Phil. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Whatever
3: are you being the
0: same person as Canis? Um, hmm, uh Yes, but no, but yes, but no.
3: Um, there's this, there's multiple photos from my wedding that about. I can show that both Candace, who was at my wedding <laughs> and I, who of course was at my own wedding obviously, Dur uh, are in <laughs> well, fact really not the same say. person
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that would be kind of awkward
3: fact, you were at your own wedding fact <laughs> this condition is true
1: but Candace is also at your wedding so it's just a supported theory
3: now we are in fact two separate people it's true if you resist- say so
0: Yeah, let's support a different theory here.
3: (laughs) I don't know, Jason. Maybe you're Candace. (laughs) Maybe we're all Candace. Oh, was that? Oh, okay. That explains a lot. Or nothing at all.
0: Episode title, (laughs) We Are All Candace.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank
2: you for listening to Polycast episode 353. Not 155, <laughs> but I hope you listen to that one as well when it actually does get made. Uh, I have been one of your regular hosts, Mega Bears fan, along with Makalua.
0: Mwahaha, now I control the audio cue.
2: The Me Team, not Kenneth albinus signing off. And again, our super special returning guest host, Dan
3: Q. Backwards and forwards, this is still episode 353. Backwards and forwards is a good technique. I use that one sometimes. Again, sounds like the basis for another podcast. I don't know if those are done in podcasts, and I admit I haven't checked. Civilization 3, 4, 5, and Beyond Earth sound clips. Copyright and Take 2 Interactive. Copyright the Polycast at thepolycast.net.